0: Hi, this is Michael Connor, I'm artistic director of Rhizome, and um, I'm here with episode, what is it now, six of our semi-defunct podcasts, which we used to jokingly refer to as either Rhizome Raw or Rhizome Rare, depending on whether it's an odd or even numbered episode. But yeah, we decided to reconvene, to have a conversation because um, we have an interesting uh, topic to delve into today, and it seemed like a nice opportunity to kind of get the band back together and go back to... Brooklyn Podcasting Studio and record a conversation. So I am here today with Aria Dean.
1: Hi. <laughs>
0: Good to be uh, back. Aria, formerly of Rhizome, now um, of other places, of, of art. I don't uh, know. <laughs> yes, of art, of currently the Whitney Biennial and other other realms. And also here with Jacob Horn. Hi. Jacob is founder of Zora, and NFT protocol. And i um, What's sort of exciting, what's very exciting is that Zora have kind of come on to uh, sponsor Rhizome's 2022 Benefit, our first since COVID, which is happening May 31st, get your tickets. And yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the concepts that have been coming up around their work. First, I want to say that Rhizome is a digital art organization based at the New Museum in New York and on the internet. We were founded in 1996 and our activities sort of like all focus around digital art We've had an interesting sort of relationship with kind of cryptocurrency conversations for quite a while. I mean, I think we published articles about Bitcoin going back to 2012 and 2013. We had a kind of big deep dive event in 2015 on blockchain's implications for cultural publishing. And sort of famously, Kevin McCoy at 7 on 7 in 2014 published an NFT with Anil Dash as part of a rhizome program that is now cited as a kind of origin story for NFTs these days so you know this is a conversation we've been participating in for a long time mostly as a sort of you know trying to learn and understand and think and ask critical questions and i think that's pretty much going to be our role today but jacob will you kick us off by talking a little about what zora is
2: yeah sure the two words is it's a protocol which is kind of a it highlights the entirety of our approach in a lot of ways so zora is an nft marketplace protocol and I guess the kind of guiding light of our approach and the way we've kind of, you know, looked at Zora is like, what is the logical extreme that of like the technology, then what that allows you to do what are those logical extremes? And then how do we work backwards from those points? So the most novel and probably the most powerful, like dimensions of Zora is that everything we've kind of deployed with the protocol is called what's a, a one way deployment, which means we can never stop it, we can never change it no one can ever stop anyone else from using it and no one can change it. And it's like current functionality. So if Zora, the website or Zora, the team kind of like somehow fell off the face of the earth or the internet, the Zora protocol will work exactly as designed for as long as the Ethereum blockchain does.
0: That sounds awesome slash (laughs) horrifying. Yes, yes.
2: I, I think everything that sounds powerful about the blockchain, like it's permissionless, it's unstoppable. It's like equally as terrifying as it is exciting so uh yeah it makes makes for a fun building territory
0: yeah i mean these questions are sort of interesting to us at ryzen because we are kind of always focused on new things and trying to support new forms of practice but also trying to think about the memory of those practices and referring to memories of past practices when Arya was at ryzen we worked on a big project around historicizing net art which was like you know (laughs) involved in looking around corners of like long lost web servers and things to like find the traces Mm -hmm. of cool projects but i think yeah like that idea of like as long as the ethereum blockchain keeps running it's like in a way kind of like implies this act of faith already when you say it Mm -hmm. because on the one hand like you know we've been watching ethereum sort of like develop over the past few years it's really incredible like to see like different developments that have happened but then at the level of like a transaction approval it's like things are so there's so much like conflict happening in every block that gets added to the chain It's like this highly oppositional environment. And the idea that this thing can like kind of continue on through like the force of like a design and the people and like a certain amount of goodwill of the people involved is kind of an interesting one to me.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think it's also just like a level of abstraction we're used to experiencing in like, you know, Web2 platforms and stuff like that. Like you never really feel the, you know, the level of kind of technical operation happening in the background. But when you're interacting with something like a blockchain, it's like, wait, why am I paying for this? It's usually, you know, another company would be paying this service cost. But in fact, you're just paying like the blockchain itself. And then you see all these crazy cryptographic signatures. And there's a lot of things that just kind of reveal itself that I think that will probably go away over time as you know, builders and products get better at abstracting it away. But yeah, it can be very in your face actually getting that kind of that exposure to very raw like internet feeling when you Mm -hmm. are interact with a protocol like this and a lot of Web3 platforms today.
0: Arya, can you talk a little about like your own relationship with crypto stuff right now? <laughs> um, Is it, yeah, you sure. have like, Some things that you're doing behind the scenes. Well,
1: and... I, I feel like I'm like a weird layperson slot, but then at the same time, I've been like, in, you know, in like sort of in a, you know, in the shining way, like you've always been here, Ari, Like, <laughs> But um, when I was at Rhizome, I feel like I saw a number of waves of like crypto I mean you saw we've seen more but I feel like there was like at least one or two waves of recurrent interest in crypto and kind of I always like stayed at the margins of that and like watched it happen and I've never been like super involved but I think and then I left Rhizome right before the big NFT boom I think so kind of it was like I've got this weird kind of relationship to it but I think mostly in the last you know year or two I've been really interested in like I got interested in like DAO stuff You know, like, Trevor and I were having a lot of conversations, like, both, like, publicly and just, like, kind of talking a lot about that stuff and interesting kind of art projects so you could, like, you know, just mobilize infrastructure towards, like, kind of weird, you know, ends. But I think since then, the thing that I've been particularly interested in is, like, conceptually just, I guess, really, like, historicizing how we talk about, I guess, the infrastructure, like, blockchain infrastructures. So, like, both on the NFT side and then in a general, I guess, like, on the NFT side and then the sort of, like, new, like, speculative institutional side. So, thinking about questions around, like, you know, and we did this, I guess, with that art anthology as well, like, the ontology of the art object and how do we actually talk about, like, what an object on the internet is and, you know, how we talk about what an object in, you know, art object in its financial life is and that sort of thing. And, like, legally, there's a dimension of that as well. But then, like, with the institutional side thinking about conversations in like both accelerationist and like European anarchist kind of like sort of circles around like communization and you know I guess the sort of like I don't want to say myth of like utopian democratic functions (laughs) or governance that you know crypto sort of presents but sort of semi-utopian and kind of really parsing what the like what the utopian and unrealizable um dimensions that are and then what the you know sort of realistic like you know infrastructural yeah possibilities are so I don't know I'm kind of just like in the background thinking about crypto through other like thought traditions slash thinking about other thought traditions through like the current I guess like crypto
0: yeah situation (laughs) Yeah. yeah and I think there's we're at like a discursive moment where like asking those kinds of questions is sort of it's not happening necessarily that much I think and I think part of the reason is because Maybe in recent months, we've been in like a really, you know, exciting market for people. And so they're talking about like how to make money and like people are calling you on the phone or something to like sell you a Bitcoin (laughs) gift card or something. And so it's like, you know, it gets really exhausting and it's a big turnoff for a lot of people to see that culture, you know, taking place. But I keep thinking back to like how in like, like in the late nineties, there were a lot of people that were like extremely critical of, you know, internet culture and the technologies, possibilities to create, you know, surveillance regimes that were, you know, unlike anything we'd seen before, but we're still, like, thinking of interesting ways that it could be, like, mobilized. Like, something like indie media, I think, is a really interesting example of, like, a pretty long-term mobilization of, like, the internet by people that were pretty skeptical of it as a technology, but had a lot of facility with it. And I think something that's pretty clear now is that we're, we're not seeing that many people that are, like, taking that position. Instead, um, People that are skeptical of the technology simply aren't engaging with it, mm-hmm. and are kind of opting out of the conversation for the most part, except to say like, "Do not, do not mm-hmm. engage." And you know, someone like myself, like I haven't even really done very many things except for like just talk about crypto and ask questions about it. And you know, people are like, "You're much too positive about this." <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> like, okay, <laughs> yeah. I guess, uh, I guess, you know. So it feels like you know, hopefully. You know, I think encouraging some of these kinds of lines of thinking is one of my interests. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why your recent essay stood out to me, and I would like to talk about it more. And it was on the topic of, it wasn't, I guess it was back in January now, but the mm-hmm. the hyperstructures uh, text you wrote, Jacob. Could you talk a bit about that post and where it came from and what exactly a hyperstructure
2: is? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess where that post came from was I realized I was having the exact same conversation describing Zora's approach, like for about a year. And I was getting frustrated that I had to kind of say the same things over again, because I just didn't realize that like how distinct our kind of philosophy was with building Zora. So it kind of came out of, you know, I was like, hang on, I said the same thing like five times in the past two weeks, maybe I should like articulate this because clearly, like other people are thinking about protocols in the same way. So that's where it kind of came out of. What a hyperstructure actually is, is an attempt to define these protocols as something distinctly new and different to traditional protocols that we've experienced on the internet. So, you know, SMTP for email or HTTP for information and, you know, these kind of foundational protocols that powered the kind of first version of the internet. Blockchain-based protocols are distinctly different because they hold state, they have like memory and once deployed, you know, onto the blockchain, they can run without maintenance from any given person. They just rely on the maintenance of the blockchain itself, which is very different to running something like, say, Gmail, which is like, okay, you need like an entire company and team that's staffed on maintaining that. And the second that that maintenance goes away, that service will degrade or will like just, you know, absolutely turn off. So with crypto protocols, I kind of wanted to find a new term and then carve some boundaries to say, like, hey, this is a hyperstructure and this is not. So kind of like the core tenants that I think um, satisfy the definition is that it is a permissionless protocol. So no one can interfere or there's no administrator of the protocol that says, you know, this person or platform can use it or not. It's completely open and there's no ability for anyone to enforce that kind of censorship. It is free at the protocol level. So there's no value extraction across the entire protocol. So there's 0% fee. Interestingly, there are built-in business models that can be opted into by platforms and and builders and also opted into by the users of that protocol. So I call these like expansive fees and in the essay, what that means is, is like, hey, now that as a user, I can always choose to use the protocol for free, that now puts you on some really interesting footing to go like, well, what platforms would I actually like to explicitly opt into? And what value exchange would I like to like define transparently using the protocol to to pay that platform. And then unstoppability is kind of like a core tenant, which I guess I built a lot of the essay around, which is that point I was saying before, which is, you know, it'll run um, regardless of the, the original creator's intentions or what maintenance or wh- whatever services they're providing, it's gonna run for as long as the underlying blockchain does. So that, and then the essay was just kind of like extrapolating like, well, this probably challenges a lot of how we think about platforms and institutions and value capture generally, because now you can have a version that's running for free how we think about like, how do we actually value this free to use infrastructure. And I kind of go on to explain that, I think there are, I kind of posit this kind of like interesting stability or instability thing, which is like, it can simultaneously be free and valuable. And I think this is probably like, where we could spend a lot of time discussing like how I think that somewhat contradictory state can actually exist. And yeah, that's kind of the high level. So like high for structures, yeah, protocols that run for free forever, on top of a blockchain can't be stopped and universally accessible for people to use.
0: So that's like the general case of like what Zora is an instance of.
2: Essentially. Yes. And I would say um, Uniswap protocol is another really good example. I would say that like a lot of Zora's approach has actually been inspired by Uniswap directly. That was kind of what, so I, I used to work at Coinbase. I worked there for about three and a half years. So Coinbase is one of the largest centralized crypto exchanges in the market today. And when I discovered Uniswap, it was mind blowing to me because it was a team of you know ten to twelve people who had built a protocol that I could use to like create a token to like sell a T-shirt, or I could get the entire power of Coinbase in a single line of code in a website, which was just like unfathomable to me, knowing how much manpower it took to to operate Coinbase. So Uniswap, I think, is like a is kind of like the example I like to use alongside Zora.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, a number of examples out there of like crypto protocols, NFT protocols, mm-hmm. or not protocols, but services that people are familiar with mm-hmm. that are really pretty similar to Web 2.0 platforms. And I guess like OpenSea would be a, a kind of interesting yeah. example here as well. Exactly, yeah. There were recently some stories of like different exploits and like the interface of OpenSea or artworks disappearing without kind of much explanation.
1: Right. So to go back to the Coinbase versus Uniswap thing and to, and to ask like sort of dumb questions to kind of put a finer point. So like, I guess, like, as a comparative model, like, with the sort of manpower required to run Coinbase versus, you know, like, where, like, what were people doing? <laughs> like,
2: yeah, it's such a good question. A simple way to think about it is, like, if the Coinbase website goes down, the entire exchange and market goes down with it. Mm-hmm. So there's no way for any developer or participant to interact with the literal exchange itself because Coinbase and the entire system has gone down. And that's primarily because the exchange functionality lives in, a database that they have complete control over who has access to it. And they run it as like a traditional kind of application on a centralized server too. versus Uniswap, which is a protocol that it runs on the Ethereum blockchain. So although the Uniswap UI and the front end may go down, someone may always be able to default to talking to the blockchain directly through either an interface like etherscan or you know, by running their own node or by using one of the many other tens to hundreds of websites that have Uniswap integrated into their own front end. So for Coinbase, a lot of the infrastructure is maintaining those like high performance servers and, and the database. And then there's also like a lot of traditional financial compliance they have to go through because they're dealing with like bank account integrations and mm-hmm. they're trusted with that capital. So there's a lot of like security and stuff that they have to take on that you could just like defer to the blockchain if you're, you're Uniswap. They don't take, trusted custody. As a Uniswap, the company, the protocol is like mediating all of that value storage and exchange themselves.
0: So in the case of the hyperstructure, the Mm -hmm. application is running on chain. Correct. Yeah. It's not running in a web server that's on Amazon. Well, I mean, maybe the Blockchain could
2: be the the blockchain is almost certainly running on Amazon. Yeah. But <laughs> you have like many, you know, every node is essentially you know an, an instance right. of the blockchain. So it's it's instead of just like a single company, you have you know many different nodes that are running on different service providers and kind of split and just doing this very specific task.
0: Mm. Right, but you can't. You don't have the CEO calling in from exactly. the head office to just to, to sort of spin things up or down. Exactly. So. I mean, this is a question that like gets at some of the like fundamental questions with institutions and, and crypto conversations, blockchain conversations, which is like the kind of virtues and limits of trustlessness or a system that kind of runs almost autonomously you know, or is almost kind of beyond like access by its creators. And I think, you know, on the one hand, like the dystopian version of the Web 2.0 crypto company is pretty clear. Like, you you know, you have an example where if it's a traditional company that just uses the blockchain, then it's subject to all the same kind of practices of censorship and surveillance that are, you know, extractive in today's web culture. Mm-hmm. Now, in the case where it runs more autonomously, you, you could be leaving this behind, but then it introduces maybe a new set of risks. So people using a protocol for hate speech, for example, mm-hmm. you know, are we creating applications that are beyond, like, the ability of, like, a government or some sort of social consensus to, like, intervene in something that's happening there.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, censorship, like, wherever we associate the negatives with censorship resistance, you then have to live with the realities of none of that. And, yeah, I think, like, as you were saying, hate speech is an example, or, you know, if there are uh, tokens or, you know, any application that operates around outside of the current constructs of the law, like, there's, there's very limited... Or very challenging ways to actually like stop that fundamentally. So a lot of those li- liabilities and obligations actually like shift up to the the platform level. So like the websites themselves have to then start curating and self selecting and self regulating. Essentially, like what aspects of the protocol do they actually want to surface or interact with? So the sense yeah, so censorship resistance is part of it. And then yeah, I guess it's like okay, if we look up and we decide that perhaps the functionality that was built has like negative externalities or like problems that like you want to adjust. It's like you can't very easily ship an upgrade or, or changes to that. It requires like pretty substantial migration away from that particular instance, because again, it is it is one way deployed and unstoppable. So mm. I think that's like two of the, the scary parts. And then I think like the third two, which I think I somewhat alluded to in the essay is that I think still the natural end state of these protocols is that there will be one big winner for each kind of core value proposition. So it's like, I don't think we will see hundreds of or thousands of Uniswap exchanges. I think there will just be one single winning protocol. Mm. And I think like that still leads to a monopolistic market structure. The hope and the ideal is that you're using the, the, the tenets of crypto to actually nullify The very well documented and understood problems that come with that market structure. So, part of the hyperstructure. Sam, what I want to kind of like follow up with is like, here's why we actually really need to pay attention to these core tenants because we actually need to design as much control and administration out of it. Because if these do end up with, if we do have like a single exchange powering all of that value transfer on the internet, we want to make sure that it's like very hard for that to be corrupted. Or singularly owned by a particular, you know, company or entity, and use those like strengths of the of the blockchain to try and like solve, you know, the logical conclusions of Web two of like these massive, single, monopolistic platforms. So I think we'll end up with single, massive, monopolistic protocols, but perhaps they're owned by no one or owned by as many people as possible, and like have, you know, use the powers of DAOs to try and mediate and solve some of those problems that we've we've seen play out in Web two now.
1: In that scenario, like, do you think that... Because I guess the question of the problem of scale that, at that, right? Like, kind of how are people thinking about... Like, cause, like, there's the underlying problem of, like, I guess, ideology or something, right? Like, kind of like, okay, well, like, you could have one, yeah, you know, sort of, like, exchange just monopolizing the market, but then, like, people are going to have different ideas of, like, what those core tenants should be. So I guess, like, like, a DAO structure would be the way to, like, to deal with that. But I guess I always wonder, like, at that scale, like, is that even possible? And do we have, like... Speculative models of like proof that it is that that could work. <laughs> is it just Yeah? Just like... I, I
2: think the I think it can work. I'm optimistic that it can work. And I think where we'll see a lot of this discourse and conflict play out is actually at the platform level. So a meaningful difference between web two and web three is that typically you'll see a say like a Facebook or a Google, they like essentially monopolize the entire stack. So You as a developer, you can't like access TikTok's entire database to like construct your own feed or build your own new experiences Mm -hmm. and play with the, the platform level. So that means that it's very hard for anyone to break and compete against that monopoly once it gets to a certain scale because the network effects required are just like insurmountable. The difference in the Web3 construct with the protocol approach is all of that network effect and state is captured and open and accessible in a protocol. So you actually will I think we'll see very uh, rich competition at the platform layer because you get you get it solves that cold start problem. Mm-hmm. Like, if I happen to have like a user interface, innovation on Uniswap or on Azora, I don't need to recreate the entire history of Zora to actually offer a compelling product, I can just surface my own view on top of that existing protocol, which means that like platforms I think will will face much more sustained competition because it's harder to build that, you know, competitive moat in like, in a sense. So I think that's where a lot of the controls will come into effect, or at least I hope so, because then it's like, well, if this platform is being massively extractive, it's very easy for me to create something with like relative feature parity and like have an attempt at solving what those called out problems are, because people can access the the core value that underlies Hmm. it. So I think that platform level competition is going to be like I think the that's a primary difference that I think can lead to a you know, maybe a more optimistic outlook than what we've seen in Web two to date.
0: Yeah, because if we I mean this is going back to like asking dumb questions, but mm-hmm. like so the kind of default NFT standard is ERC seven twenty one I guess mm-hmm. which that's a protocol correct or is that's, that a just a, that's just that's a standard. just that's just yeah so, so anyone can, protocol
2: exactly anyone okay. can copy paste create new versions of which is what we've been seeing over the past few years.
0: So can you define standard platform protocol? <laughs> yeah,
2: that's like, okay. So standard is basically like, imagine it's a document that just says, for this thing to be an NFT, it needs to have this certain list of functions. Right. And so long as it features that list of functions, which may be like transfer or metadata and token URI and token ID, if, it, if your version or instance of that standard complies, then... Everyone considers it an NFT, and that means it's very easy to build protocols because they now have a standard interface and set of functions that they can interact right. with.
0: And Uniswap, and so are protocols, which has to do with actually moving that.
2: Exactly. So uh, the protocol is basically a set of rules for then interacting and you know uh, exchanging or manipulating said tokens. So Uniswap is a way to exchange ERC twenty or like fungible tokens. And Zora is a protocol for exchanging NFTs, non-punchable tokens. And the protocols are basically very minimal applications and rule sets that define doing one very simple task. So it could be, you know, sending an email or transferring the information to load a website or exchanging an NFT or a token. So those are the protocols. And then the platforms are basically the applications that make those protocols easy and accessible to use. So a Gmail on top of the SMT protocol, the Uniswap website on top of the protocol, the catalog music NFT marketplace built on top of the Zora protocol. So they're like the websites and the ultimately the end user experience that packages up maybe one or many protocols to achieve a given product.
0: So continuing my dumb questions, is OpenSea a platform or a protocol?
2: OpenSea is a platform.
0: And what is the underlying protocol?
2: So it uses a protocol called Wyvern. Um, the biggest difference... Wyvern, I've
0: heard, never I heard of that before. Yeah, so it's, a,
2: <laughs> it's built on a protocol that... It was built uh, in 2017. And it's by definition not a hyperstructure because the actual like market state lives in a database. So Wyvern is quite interesting because it's like a, it enables platforms... And it just simply allows for the like act of transferring. But if OpenSea goes down, much like Coinbase, the entire market goes down with it because the state of the market, the marketplace right. itself, runs in a database.
0: So going back to Ari's
2: question, oh, go you, on, sorry. Well, it was just like, I the question, question was like,
0: like <laughs> these things, like it seems like beyond our capacity to like socially negotiate a, a protocol, like as a people, not <laughs> as like, humans. Like, <laughs> that's like seems like way too difficult. And yet, as you've described, these things have incredible power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in a way, I think what seems like what you're arguing for. I mean, the protocols exist regardless of the hyperstructure argument. Like there mm-hmm. are protocols. It's just which kind of protocols do we want, and you're arguing for a particular mm-hmm. kind, which has less of an interface with like an existing kind of business entity than the ones that we have, mm-hmm. and. Because these protocols are going to become so important, it's kind of important that like a business entity isn't like sort of controlling what's happening with it in, in that way.
2: It's both that. And if you do build a hyperstructure, it actually creates the conditions, I think, to usurp and be more powerful than traditional platform constructs.
1: Like kind of like actually actualizing the quote-unquote, like, dreams of the Web 3, of, like, like actually, like, decentral, like, building things that are actually decentralized and run on their own versus, like, this apparently strange, like, cosmetically decentralized, yeah. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> like, method. Not only that, <laughs> it actually serves and offers, like, better functionality right. than the Web 2 construct. So I think the most... Um, it's Not many people discuss this, but, like, Uniswap has actually overtaken Coinbase in the amount of liquidity mm. for Ethereum-based assets. So that's taken... Three, three or so years. But like initially, like Uniswap, you know, it started with zero liquidity. It's very clunky. You have to pay gas for every transaction. But the kind of network effect that's come out of being permissionless is that other platforms are willing to build on that protocol because they know they're not going to get deplatformed. So, like, you know, I think a lot of developers have kind of PTSD from like having their Twitter API keys revoked and like. Facebook API suddenly gets very restrictive. So this app you've like built over years suddenly is no longer functional on a whim because those platforms decided they want to own that business. You do not have that risk with a hyperstructure because you can see in the code as a developer that I cannot be, I can never have my access revoked from Mm -hmm. this. So that means that you kind of have, instead of being a singular website that you go to like Coinbase to exchange. The act of exchanging and swapping is just something that permeates eventually every single crypto application. Mm -hmm. Instead of always going to Uniswap, oh, I might just swap in my rainbow wallet, or I might just swap in this application to like, you know, buy an NFT. Um, And the nature of the hyperstructure means that it's like, actually, I think creates this very rich platform ecosystem, which then means that a Uniswap can eventually overtake a Coinbase in the core functionality itself. So not Mm -hmm. just on an idealistic basis, it's like you can get a better price on Ethereum USD trading on Uniswap than you can on Coinbase now.
1: It also is really interesting to me, kind of, this is like, not a question, but it's sort of like a thought or kind of like an out. Like, Mm -hmm. sort of, I guess what you're saying also, it sounds like to sort of stage this shift towards these like, well, one, I guess, like the hyperstructure thing seems interesting that it's like, do more annoying work now for like longer term benefit of like everyone in this space. Mm -hmm. But then also kind of in order to do that work, it's like really has to come. And I guess this is probably the case with anything with crypto infrastructures, but it has to come from like the developer level. Like developers have to be like, no, I'd prefer to, we all prefer to like build in this way versus like build in this sort of, which then I guess made me think about like, the church, kind of, and how, like, sort of, like, a clergy revolution, where it's, like, there's a certain class of people who, like, mm-hmm. have access to this, like, infrastructure and, like, knowledge base and can say, like, actually, you can have a direct relationship to, like, this protocol if we're, you know, or, I don't know, just, like, kind of shifting the, I don't know, yeah, it has a very, like, um, reformation-y kind
2: of, like, Yeah, and <laughs> like it, it ends up being, it mostly ends up being a really easy decision for a developer because they simply have no access to right, Coinbase right. for what they want to do in the first right. place at all. So they're like, oh yeah. I can literally only do this if I use right. this one available thing. Which
1: then I guess leads to a question of like why, at least as far as or like as far as I understand from, you know, like where we're at right now, there's still the necessity of making an argument for this like hyper like structure kind of method instead. Like why are people not just rushing towards
2: that, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting is that since writing that essay, there is now like, I very consistently get messages and emails from like, there is like kind of a a rush of people now like explicitly opting into this approach Mm. and adopting this strategy at the protocol level, which has been really cool to see, like, I didn't expect that. So I think the essays played a small part in actually helping in like going, Hey, like, not only can you build a protocol which like meets these ideals, I actually think there is a viable path to this being something that's like valuable to do and if you're coming from like this traditional startup world or you're like looking to like make a living it's like I think it can be profitable for you to do this. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like a a big shift too where it's like you can kind of you get this like open source ideal but instead of it being open source just for the sake of open source and not being something that is necessarily sustainable I think this can actually achieve both which kind of comes into the free and valuable part of the discussion. And then I think there's just been an educational piece of this. And I think people have really thought about protocols in this way. So I think that's been like the big shift recently. And there haven't really been many examples. I would say like Uniswap, like for me, it was kind of an eye-opening moment. And I was very deep in exchange because I was working at Coinbase. So, and I think like people are now starting to understand Uniswap. And now Zora is another example that's out there and albeit a lot earlier is starting to show like a lot of promise i think now people are waking up to the approach is something that is exciting and something that's worthwhile doing
0: yeah i think it's sort of interesting like some of the dynamics in this conversation for me like evoke like longer arguments that have been happening around like political organizing and technology mm-hmm. and um you know i think you know i'm not an expert in this history by any means but it does sort of call to mind like arguments that are happening about like how to organize fully automated communism back in the 70s, like when people were talking about how duly developed cybernetics technologies could organize society in, in ways that were more equitable. And you kind of had like different competing camps where there was like a centralized control version and then there was like a, you know, a decentralized version of it um, mm-hmm. where like through technologies, administration, the central committee could be abolished and power could be, you know, moved out to the fringes and, and so forth. You know, but I think, like, a lot of those arguments then get hung up on, like, how do you design the way that the technology moves the... <laughs> yeah, the power to the fringes, et cetera, which mm-hmm. I think is, like, sounds like very much kind of, like, the conversation that's happening now among a very f- few people, but hopefully more. But I-, I wonder if you're seeing any, like, resonance with the, like, blockchain communism book that you were, you've were you been reading on.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I was, like, a few months ago reading... um. Crypto-Communism by Mark Alazart, like for a review that I've yet to write um, that was supposed to be on Outland. But yeah, I actually think what Jacob's saying about the sort of like the way that building is enabled in this hyperstructural like scenario in terms of like that it's like actually easy to like keep making like edits essentially. and, earn, and that I mean, this is my, you know, weird layperson kind of translation of it, I think does rhyme with so, yeah, in like crypto communism, it's like kind of mostly just like this. If people haven't read it, it's mostly just this like Bitcoin will like save us. It's like the perfect communist like, you know, strategy. Like it creates the space for, you know, communist organization, which obviously I think we can agree that that's not like baseline necessarily <laughs> the case, That you'd have to do a lot more work to like, you know, create those infrastructures. But I was really interested in um, reading that book. And then alongside I've been reading a lot of like French anarchist communization theory conversation, which kind of like, I guess I had this sort of pet question in my head of like, okay, there's all these debates about accelerationism versus communization and kind of had this like unfounded hunch that some things about crypto infrastructures could solve the apparent conflict between these two ways of thinking about a possible like radical politic. And what you're saying about the editing process and this hyperstructural scenario I think actually kind of it really resonates with the sort of communization theory stuff about like communism and communization, communism being an ongoing process of like revolution rather than like some state that we'll eventually get to. And so this like kind of process as goal almost kind of like, mm-hmm. or I know that that's something that I'm hearing and what you're saying. And that like if you look at like, okay, we can just like keep building this thing that, you know, I mean, I guess the other, I guess on the other side of it though, the sort of like fact that you can't like with, I mean, it's got, again, it's like, not a developer, so I'm kind of, like, wrapping my head around certain elements of this, but, you know, that, like, you do have to settle on the core tenets of the protocol, so I guess it's, like, not that flexible in certain ways. But something about what you're saying does seem like there's, like, a, you know, space for the... Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm interested overall in this, like, in in amending, I guess, this, like, crypto-communism argument to be, like, I guess maybe some sort of, like, crypto-communization argument, and I think, like, DAOs, you know, resonate with that as well, but... It, we're a long way from, like, the perfect form of... Or I don't even really know how to make the perfect form of that argument. Yeah, <laughs>
0: like, I mean, I think a lot of the and a lot of the extent to which this is even a conversation that can happen like will rest on, like, how open protocols are versus, you know, which is, like, hard to imagine as a layperson. But I think another dimension of it that strikes me is that, you know, one of the big dynamics in this past year has been, like, the government's relationship with crypto. And um, I would say that, in general, crypto gets kind of painted as a libertarian space but there is also that like anarchist dimension um which is i think also very important and you know i'm trying to like read like government statements about crypto in terms of like you know what as like what aspect of it are they seeing Mm -hmm. and i think what they might be seeing is like a possibility of like not at all doing what you're describing
2: jacob yeah (laughs) i
0: think that's right (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah right
2: and i think um maybe just feed to the the communism piece and like taking that lens, I think this is where it's really useful to build the mental model in your mind of like the distinction between protocol and platform. Mm -hmm. Because I think Mm -hmm. the protocols are public, the platforms are private, the protocols are free, the platforms can be profitable. And I think like the kind of maybe the communist tendencies of the protocol piece is that it is public and it runs at cost. Mm -hmm. So there is no extraction. So no matter what, someone should always be able to access this public and as free as possible technology and piece of infrastructure. And then at the platform level, that's where you kind of maybe satisfy some of the capitalist aspects of it's like, well, there is free and open competition Mm -hmm. in a market that is like, everyone now has access to this infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. compete and create the best possible service you can on top of it but the platforms are not able to monopolize and restrict access to the underlying right. infrastructure itself, which is kind of the improvement.
1: Yeah, when you were talking about it earlier, I was starting to think about, because you are kind of like defining like, yeah, like standard protocol platform. Like I was also thinking about like interface as like the other sort of obviously key mm-hmm. word in it, but kind of like, you know, this thing where people forget that the internet at a point, it was like, you know, protocols and interfaces, not like protocol mm-hmm. platform interface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and in, mm-hmm. I think that the sort of, and I guess, yeah, again, like the, you know, there's like knowledge gaps and like generational gaps and like, you know, interacting with the internet as an infrastructure. It's like, oh, like, yeah, I have to use this platform versus like, you know, even, and, and and like, I think people are like, oh, like, but then to like access a protocol dimension or like a code dimension, like that it would require, like, you know, knowing how to do, but then it's like, no, there can be an interface that interacts mm-hmm. with the protocol. And like, that's enough of a pairing. You don't have to have like, yeah, the sort of extraction like layer of it, but people are just like happily like, yeah, sure. I'll like put my NFT on I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Wherever <laughs> it may
2: be. Yeah. yeah. I think um, yeah, I think like people will they don't necessarily need to know the specific like I don't know how many people would be able to say name all the protocols the internet's built on. And I don't think that mm-hmm. matters. They don't need to. Mm-hmm. I think it's just um, yeah, all of this discourse and conflict and competition happens at the platform layer. And I think as a platform it'll be increasingly difficult to compete directly with a hyperstructure unless you've built one yourself. So Mm -hmm. I think that's where it kind of, that's where it like nets out or like that's where I think all of the, yeah, discussion discourse (laughs) happens basically, (laughs) or just building. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's harder to build on. It's harder to compete against Uniswap as a platform. It's better to just build on top of it because there's really no incentive not to.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I I really do see like an aspect of this, which is also going to be about communication because... Um, you know, I could foresee like a, like moves happening where things like MetaMask disappear from the Chrome extension store, mm-hmm. th- you know, things like that, where this version of crypto becomes like less visible and like the version where you just start spending $5 on Robinhood for what they say is bit, some Bitcoin or something mm-hmm. is like the, the version that people have access to somehow in discourse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think kind of continuing that conversation like on that more fundamental level is going to be important so that it just doesn't become like further extraction by all of the same people that are that have been doing it all along yeah and so I think one place where people can continue that conversation will be at the Rhizome Benefit on <laughs> May 31st <laughs> yeah if you liked what you heard here today folks this is what the Benefit conversation will be exactly like at your table
2: <laughs> I'll be at, I'll be at every table <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah but I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to talk through mm. these topics with us and,
2: thank you yeah.
0: thank you um, i learned a lot and i had fun too <laughs>
2: <laughs> thanks michael yeah, and thanks thank to josh you. for
0: recording us today